Hello and welcome to the Geeky Medics podcast. My name is Josh Chambers and this podcast selfishly gives me an excellent excuse to interview interesting doctors and healthcare professionals from a range of backgrounds, drilling down to why they chose the speciality they're in and what it's really like to do the job. In this episode, we have our first paramedic joining us, explaining the history of the profession and how the role has developed over the years. I hope you enjoy. episode we're joined by Paul Gates, a consultant paramedic and deputy clinical director at the East of England Ambulance Service. Hi Paul, thanks for very much for joining us on the podcast. Um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to have you on and we haven't had a paramedic on yet, um, so it's, it's very nice to have you. Um, I thought just looking at, I was doing some background reading of your career, you've done lots of different things and um, you're not just an ordinary paramedic, you, you do other things, lots of other things as well. I wondered if you could sort of t- take me through what, what an average week is like for you. Thanks, Josh. Um, so an average week for me at the moment is probably not average because I've just started a new job. So I'm week three into a, a new job uh, in the east of England. So for me at the moment, it's kind of just doing a lot of listening and understanding about my new organisation. I'm doing a lot of uh, in- introduction meetings, a lot of talking to people to find out uh, how uh, the organisation is uh tackling the clinical issues but of course at the same time uh it would be remiss of me not to not to talk about uh covid and and the fact that how that's affecting delivery of safe patient care Mm. uh, across the area that i work and we are but 30 seconds into the podcast and COVID's already mentioned. Um, I try and avoid it. No, um, but of course, you know, it, it changes healthcare and, you know, whatever we're doing, it just, you know, messes with our ordinary healthcare systems and makes all our systems just um, wrong. Uh, I wondered if if um, if you could sort of take us, take us back to, I don't know, um, why you became a paramedic in the first place. You know, was it something you always wanted to do? Was it, you know something you just sort of found out about? No, so funny enough, uh, I'd always wanted to study medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess there are a number of people that, that, that get into the paramedic pro- pro- profession because they may have wanted to study medicine in the past. I think my situation may be slightly affected by the fact that my father had a long and distinguished career within the ambulance service and was kind of, you know, whilst I was never forced and, you know, I was never guided down that route, I was very encouraged to make my own decisions at a very young age. Mm. I kind of joined St John Ambulance at the age of eight. Uh, In those days, they were called juniors. They're now called... uh, Badgers, I think, mm, mm. Uh, and and from that worked my way through the St John Cadet years. And I guess uh, whilst I did do a year of medical school, uh, I did a first degree in physiology and then did a year of medical school. But then mm. finished that after those four after those four years, 
on reflection, was it the right decision? I don't know, but I think it was in hindsight. Uh, and joined uh, then the Essex Ambulance Service back in 93. Right. Uh, and kind of really have never looked back from it then. And, I, and if someone said to me, has the profession changed in the 20, well, I've done 27, 28 years in February 2021 mm. within mm. the ambulance services. Has things changed? Clinically, things have changed, mm. but actually the basis of how we do them hasn't. Education's got a lot better. Mm. Uh, you know, as from next year, people will need to have a first degree to join the profession and go on to the HCPC register, which yeah. I think is a really significant contribution to the profession simply because actually when i first joined the profession mm. and became a paramedic registration came in about 2020 uh, and in those days uh it was registered by the council or i think it was a council supplementary to medicines the professions are supplementary to medicines mm. uh, and then that became the hcpc and i think at that stage when you looked at the qualification you needed to become a paramedic it was defined as equal to a certificate in higher education mm. uh, so a lot of work has been done by the college of paramedics and other organizations to uh, move the profession on and make it a, 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 a profession that you need to have a first degree to get into now. Yeah. So yeah. I think that that's, that's been a real advantage. And I think the other thing I have seen in the profession now is the opening up of opportunities for people who are paramedics to go and do other things. Mm -hmm. So when I started in the profession in 1993 and became a paramedic in 1995, if you wanted to be a paramedic, you could only work in an ambulance service. Yeah, and if you yeah. wanted to take career progression, it was really only through the generic general management type route, operations mm. type route. There were very mm. few opportunities outside of ambulance services for paramedics mm. and or for clinical careers or, or, or other things. Yeah. Um, but work by colleagues of mine and myself have kind of pushed the boundaries and now there are so many opportunities for the uh, profession to go into outside of ambulance services. You know, there's a lot of work going on and I've been involved with it of paramedics working in primary care, uh, outside of the ambulance services, supporting mm. general practice and supporting first first contact practitioner roles. Mm. But also there is the more traditional urgent care, advanced practicing, yeah. uh, urgent and care, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and, yeah. and um, critical care paramedics mm. as well. So I think it's really exciting and has moved on substantially from when I started, really, which was, if we, if we think about it, only about, and I only thought about this today in preparation to have a chat with you, mm. but paramedic profession only really started in 1990. Yeah. Uh, uh, so it's a really young profession actually as well. Well, I, I, I um, have done sort of shifts with, with paramedics, uh, you know, uh, and crews and things. And I have talked to some proper old school paramedics uh, who have been, you know, they've seen it all, they've done it all, uh, you know, and uh, they were, you know, ambulance drivers you know way back when that's what they did they transferred patients then and with you know, obviously limited clinical care but what it is now you know you are autonomous clinicians um you know primarily in that initial stage of the patient journey so i mean do you think it's the the uh, increase in education that has allowed more opportunities to come up i think 
on reflection, Josh. I think you've got um, clearly better education, better um, better understanding of pathophysiology, mm. sociology, um, pharmacology, which has helped broaden the broaden the profession, and I think broaden the understanding. But I think you know, uh, and 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 I would say I'm I went through the traditional old school type of training, where um, I think people have seen the scope of paramedic practice and have seen how it fits in greater now into improving care within the community you know as you quite rightly say paramedics are probably great one of the greatest autonomies um to do practice Mm. certainly outside of the hospital than most other professions who work at the same uh, agenda for change banding you know yeah 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 it's that i think there is a reflection on the quality and how the profession is seen and has moved on professionally Hmm. to allow it to develop to where it is today i wonder if we could talk about because you've obviously said you you came through a very traditional route but um i suppose you didn't in the sense that you have got a degree in physiology so that perhaps isn't a traditional way in i mean what did you decide to to go from that degree uh into paramedic because of your work with saint john's ambulance or I think I think it was a bit of both. I think it was the fact that um, I wanted to do medicine and I found physiology a really interesting subject and still mm. do. Mm. Um, you know, I'm quite nerdy around the physiology and, and how that and, and how and how that works. So I enjoyed that degree. And then I think what happened is that uh, I, I did a year of medicine. Decided I didn't want to do it anymore, and and left. But I want. But I think I was pretty heavily influenced by the fact of what I did in St John. Yeah, and I think yeah. That, that enabled me to um, think about that. Yes, this is a career I want to do, and I did know about it because obviously having a having my father spend yeah. over forty years in the profession, uh, and and having other colleagues. So I think that was probably. It was kind of something I felt naturally into. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, and, and I think you make a really valid point. So when I joined the ambulance service back in 93, I think there were only three people with a degree within my service. Mm. I knew of three people that had a first degree. Mm. Uh, so it wasn't normal to join an ambulance service with a degree. Um, but that quite quickly started to turn... Uh, and so within five years, there was people, you know, coming into the profession because mm. they because people had started to work out that actually with a degree, you were able to progress quite quickly. And certainly I had that fortune and I had some mentors and I had support very, on in, uh, very early on in my career that allowed mm. me to do that. Mm. So you think having a degree allowed you to do that because not many other people had one at that time. Um, but now, obviously, it's the norm. Um you you uh, obviously started started off as a paramedic, but worked as a, a consultant paramedic in, in the London Ambulance Service. What what is a consultant paramedic? What does the job involve? So the consultant paramedic is a role which um, has evolved probably in the last five or six years, uh, and it sits alongside parallel to the other consultant level uh, allied healthcare professions. Mm. So our consultant nurse, consultant physiotherapist. 
and, and, and there are four strands to the role, and the role is overseen in a number of sense by the College of Paramedics in terms of four key areas. So expert clinical practice, uh, strategic leadership, research, and education. Uh, and, and they are the four prongs of the role that you're expected to be involved with. Mm. So um, my expert clinical practice is uh, predominantly around enhanced pre-hospital critical care. Um, my senior leadership was around being a consultant paramedic within uh, London. Uh, my research interests were based on the critical care stuff. And then my education was based both in the NHS, but also outside with the other organisations that I have an involvement with. Mm-hmm. And the role predominantly is to provide input at a, for, at a senior level with it mm-hmm. from the paramedic profession to what is going on within that organisation. So to represent paramedic profession within the organisation, mm-hmm. but also to support clinical development, clinical uh, development, and so providing that senior clinical leadership. Mm-hmm. And did you enjoy the role? I did actually, yeah. And, and actually it's kind of, helped me settle into my new role really really quickly so i've taken mm. on the deputy clinical director role within the east of england ambulance service uh and that's very much akin to the role that i mm. have done previously mm-hmm. do you still do you still do clinical work yeah very much so i still mm. do clinical work um both within my new organization but also both within my voluntary and spare time as well through the british association for immediate care yeah, so I was going to talk. So you also involved in basics. Um, what what basics um, is it? So basics. So we, we've we've kind of re, rebranded only in the last year, and we're now the British Association for Immediate Care. And I'm the right. I'm honoured to be the national chair at the moment. So I've been yeah. in that chair role about a year. Hmm. Uh, I'm the first paramedic to take that role. Uh, so yeah, the 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 association sprung up in 1977, where there'd been a recognition by one or two very eminent uh, doctors that um, patients were dying at the roadside because they were not getting the appropriate pre-hospital care. Hmm. Uh, And in those days, as we alluded to earlier when we were speaking, um, paramedic practice, well, it wasn't paramedic practice, it was kind of a bit of first aid. Hmm. Uh, Patients needed some stronger pain relief. They needed, you know, some more advanced intervention. And so... Over the years, quite quickly, immediate care schemes sprung up Mm. uh, and and they were represented by the British Association for Immediate Care Schemes. Mm. So, And that's kind of where basics grew from. Uh, Over the last year, over the last three years, I've been chair a year and then three years previously as the on-secretary and working with Mm. the other directors of the charity, Mm. uh, we have modernised the organisation to support pre-hospital delivery within a broader within a, within a broader space, you know we've got uh, you know our amenities have come on board now. There's the um, there's the FEM curriculum and the yeah. subspeciality of emergency uh, medicine and and, and uh, anaesthetics, uh, and and so we are a represented organizations or a membership organization that supports both members in looking at their career in pre-hospital care Mm -hmm. but also supports the about 40 immediate care schemes that exist up and down the country Mm. where you've got predominantly doctors who are providing in their own time pre-hospital care response 
uh, to their community. Mm-hmm. The, with the basics and things, what what would you say to people who who want to get to get involved with their local basics um, basic scheme? I know sort of more more and more paramedics are getting involved as well. Obviously, with their skill set, it sort of makes sense. But what would you say if people want to want to get involved with it? So I think what 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 I would say, and it's bit of a misnomer. The, the, the relationship a, an immediate care scheme has with its ambulance service will define who can and who can't respond for them. Mm. One, of the, one of the key things that as immediate care schemes is there is a want for them to provide additional care beyond that of standard paramedic practice. Mm. So normally paramedics that get involved with uh, immediate care schemes will have additional strings to their bow will probably either be critical care paramedics yeah specialist practice in critical care or advanced practice in critical care um there are some schemes an increasing number now up and down the country that put out uh teen cars so there's a doctor normally and a paramedic that go out very similar to air air ambulances Hmm. to 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 provide the response and i think uh, whilst a lot of people think it's down to the national organisation to provide the governance around how these schemes practice is not, it's the relationship between their statutory NHS ambulance service and the yeah. scheme and how that works. Hmm. If there are doctors, nurses or paramedics that want to get involved in, in the scheme, then uh, I would initially either speak to the national organisation about where their local scheme is or email most of the schemes nationally have a website now mm-hmm. uh, and have a look on there and, and see how it works. Uh, if, the, uh, if there's any docs that want to get involved or, or thinking about a career in pre-hospital care, then uh, the association either provides, so provide, provides a suite of training opportunities and courses for people to do, mm-hmm. but it also provides the opportunity to have that discussion with their local scheme about how and if they can be involved. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, talking a bit more generally about the profession, where where do you see it going in in the future, uh, moving forward? You've obviously talked a lot about how how it's moved from 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 where it was to what it is now, but where do you see it moving forward? So I think there have been some really exciting opportunities in the last two or three years. So only last year it was approved for paramedics to be able to undertake non medical prescribing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's a real enhancement to the skill set. Um, there is work going on uh, around paramedics in primary care, paramedics in urgent care. So I think that paramedics are well placed because of their ability to confidently work in the pre-hospital environment mm-hmm. to be able to support um the delivery of primary care, but also there are an increasing number of paramedics beginning to work in hospitals yeah. and take up uh, the ACP roles, mm. uh, and, you know, in, in intensive care and in uh, anaesthetics and in general medicine. So diversification of, of the roles in, in specialist areas related to paramedic. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and they're, and they're sitting on alongside nurse and physiotherapy colleagues hmm. who are able to uh, undertake that undertake that first contact role. Hmm. Uh, clearly, you know the the traditional model for paramedics and ambulance services are very much opening up career opportunities for paramedics if they want to take a clinical career route. 
through mm. from specialist advanced to consultant level practice. Uh, and there are, you know, there's a lot of work going on nationally to support paramedics going to board level and one or two ambulance trusts have started to appoint paramedics at their board level, mm. a bit like a chief nurse to mm. support uh, paramedic ear to the board to yeah. support decision making and and and, and uh, assurance what's the favorite part of your job at the moment i think the favorite part is getting out and talking to the paramedics and the uh and the technicians that are delivering care out on the roads mm. some of the best conversations i have with our cl- clinicians is not you know in a, in a crew room but it's normally at the hospital or on scene of jobs yeah. And I think that, that listening to their views and listening to their thoughts on how the profession can develop mm. is an important part that has been missed in the past. But in my view, it is a really important part to how we can continue to develop the profession so it is able to contribute significantly to the future of healthcare in the UK. Mm. And I suppose we talk about the diversification of the, the roles and the different specialist areas, but I suppose it comes down fundamentally uh, to the fact that most paramedics will probably stay on the road in in that with you know with their crew i mean that's where they're needed the most that's the you know the fundamental job of a paramedic there um so you know uh that that still has to be maintained and and things and and i think the, and i think that, that that's a really valid point actually josh because what one one of the things we've seen uh of 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 late really and be, be, because of the development of these new opportunities for the profession is that um people have started to diversify and look at other ways of doing their you know look look, look at other op- opportunities but actually you know hopefully a large number of people will need to stay in the profession because actually the job at the roadside the job in someone's home is still in my view one of the best jobs in the world you know, being able to turn up, support a patient who's called 999, who is probably at the end of their tether because of a medical problem or a social problem. Mm. I think it's really important that people are able to continue to provide that level of care, provide that support, provide that ability to provide a clinical treatment plan for those patients and either take them to hospital if they need to or refer them to another part of the NHS mm. so that they can get the care they need. Mm. Or, or indeed discharge them if they feel clinically appropriate, which I suppose is something that, that you, uh, will, will happen more and more. Um, yeah, and, and that, yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the key pieces of work going on at the moment is to how we as a profession, as the paramedic profession, can support mm. um, paramedics safely discharge patients and and, and that comes with a degree of needing to look at the education process which I know a number of colleagues have been doing Mm. uh, successfully turned the way we educate our paramedics now but also to give them the confidence to be able to make those discharge Mm. decisions uh, to support those, those, those patients. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a, uh, an FY1 doctor, so I can't yet discharge people. Um, but even if I do think they need discharging, I've got a, an array of blood tests, uh, uh, usually a CT scan, maybe an X-ray. Uh, and then I think, yeah, they could probably be discharged. But to do that with, you know, a basic set of OBS and an ECG, essentially, and, you know, uh, you know, clinical history taking and things, ah, yeah, that must be tricky. I think that's one of the, you know, certainly when I'm when I'm talking to 
um, CCG Acute's uh, colleagues, one of the one of the key issues is 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 about that presenting patients. You know, we always get told and always been told that ambulance services bring too many patients to hospital, mm. and uh, probably those patients don't need to come. But actually, you know, when those patients come into you in the acute sector in the emergency department or through another route. Mm before they're discharged normally yes there will be some that probably could have been discharged without that set of you know a set of uh, bloods and an x-ray and a ct scan but actually most patients that get admitted into ed will probably have that set before they're discharged and i think that that that's a position that often people forget yeah when you know when an ambulance crew bring a patient into the ed they've done they've done a clinical assessment and a physical assessment they've they you know maybe have a differential diagnosis in their mind Hmm. um but actually aren't necessarily able to do that without a couple of other tests yeah yeah Um, and 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 so it really is that you know at times difficult to have those conversations Hmm. so yes maybe this patient didn't need to come in but they've had an additional set of tests in your department before you've discharged yeah 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 i mean i suppose point of care testing things like uh, vbgs will become very useful um and i assume as technology gets better you know having a lactate in the back of an ambulance uh gives you a clue as to how ill someone is you know for instance uh or briefly knowing their kidney function if you could do that right there would be you know so i mean yeah technology i assume yeah i mean some of the so my my previous organization London uh, with their advanced paramedic practitioners in urgent care doing some work with uh, a point of point of care testing mm. uh, and we were looking at something in the east of England only um, it came across my desk about two two weeks ago about supporting some stuff going on within the region yeah. so I think yeah that's where probably some of the research and development stuff is quite exciting is is looking at what are the boundaries to yeah. using point of care testing for lactate etc yeah. etc to yeah. support yeah decision making and better appropriate decision making mm-hmm. i was wondering sort of before this interview i was just comparing the role of a paramedic in the uk to one in australia or the us um how does it compare in terms of autonomy and and what what we can do in the uk so i think broadly paramedic practice i would say probably sits greater towards with a closer affinity to our australian and new zealand colleagues mm-hmm. and certainly when I was in London, we had a substantial amount of paramedics yeah. join us from Australia and New Zealand. And actually, whilst the degree structure is slightly different, it was more akin to how it works in the UK. Mm. And we were able to quite quickly APL a number of all the, all the paramedic students that came from Australia and, and New Zealand mm. into the UK model yeah. uh, game game registration. I think that the model in the US is slightly more um, regimented and state driven. Mm. Uh, and, and so the model is quite more of a medical direction still, you know, there have been some excellent examples of things moving on and certainly things have moved on in Canada mm. uh, a lot around autonomous practice um, you know, Australia year ago, 18 months ago, along with New Zealand, bought in registration as well. So there's been right. a significant amount of development within that. I think what we do find in Australia, 
and Australia, New Zealand uh, and America is that there are generally less physicians involved in delivery of pre-hospital care. Mm. So in Australia, for example, for instance, uh, in Amherst, Victoria, intensive care paramedics will undertake a rapid sequence intubation at the roadside in yep. an appropriate patient. Which is something they don't do here currently. They don't do in in the UK. That's yep. a physician-led service currently. And I know there's been, it's quite a hot topic in yep. terms of research. Uh, so I'll park that one there. <laughs> um, but I think there is, um, and 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 in some states in America they do it as well. Mm. And I think that's probably just because of the way the profession has developed right. in those areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, one other area I wanted to ask about is is mental health. It was clear I've done a few shifts with with different crews and and had a, an excellent experience there as as a medical student. Um, but what strikes me, and, and I think it is, you know, in the news as well, is mental health, obviously, is is a good chunk of the amount of patients that you see have mental health issues. Um, and I just wonder sort of what the, what the training is like for paramedics with mental health issues. I mean, it's it's very tricky. Often the police may need to be involved or often they need a specialist mental health assessment. But paramedics aren't always obviously best suited to do either of those things. No, no. And I think I think whilst whilst training has come on significantly within mental health, there is also, you know, a number of ambulance services have looked at how we can provide mental health services differently. Hmm. So uh, a number of ambulance services have uh, employed mental health nurses within their clinical hubs. Hmm. Uh, certainly where I came from uh, in, in, in London, uh, we had a consultant nurse from in, men, in mental health, a consultant mental health nurse, yep. who really led some significant work on delivering a mental health response car. Hmm. So as a paramedic and a mental health nurse, able to respond to mental health patients who were at crisis, uh, hmm. but also who've been able to provide some really quality outstanding quality mental health training you know i've got a uh, i've got a mental health lead in the trust i'm in now and some of the work we are we are looking at is how mental health nurses can provide support to ambulance clinicians mm. both through training but also in how they can support better care delivery of those patients on scene certainly in the models i've seen in london a number, you know, we've been able to keep a number of patients out of emergency department and mm. also psychiatric centres, mm. mental health centres, so to support them better in the community where they're yeah. able to be, be helped a lot better. Yeah. So I think, train, once again, training has got better, but there is still a lot of work to do uh, from the specialist mental health teams about how we can, they, we can support each other mm. who deliver a better better care or more appropriate care to patients who are having a mental health crisis yeah yeah i mean it goes back to the point it's not all ed is not always the best place for them either so it's um and that that being the default position of of paramedics having to bring people to ed um yeah it's not great but it seems that there's sort of areas that, that are getting better and yeah mental health nurses and and with with crews makes a lot of sense um, for that initial assessment yeah and it's been you know as i said there's been a lot of work there's been a lot of work with the appropriate people so you know mental health not only mental health but maternity mm. end of life care all of these are really important parts of paramedic practice now that have mm. developed yeah, over the last 
three, four, five years as we see um, patients and their requirements and what they want when they call 999 develop and change. Yeah, I hadn't considered palliative care as, as something that paramedics would deal deal with regularly. But of course, um, yeah, patients with pain or symptoms at end of life will often require an ambulance if they can't get hold of another specialist. So, yeah, no, no, yeah. and I see, and I see, and I've only seen that this year with within my own family hmm. that my mother was end of life, and the ambulance crews that came to her in her final days were absolutely outstanding, and that was hmm. because they'd had some that had appropriate input to the respect process, the respect yeah. document, yeah. and yeah. knew that that, you know, my mum didn't need to go to hospital. She just needed, she just needed to have her breathing controlled in, 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 in her case to allow her to be comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that, that is probably a really important part of how we as a profession are able to support the end of life care stuff. And I know, you know, um, but, Millen have been really helpful in supporting yeah. ambulance services as well as the other charities in how we can get better and get better education within that scope of our practice. And yeah, and you mentioned respect forms there as well. I think very, very useful uh, communication tools between the hospital and, and the community um, with, with those sort of decisions, advanced advanced decisions to, to not bring people to hospital, which are really yeah. useful. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I I think I've I've ran out of questions to ask you. I don't want to keep you too long either. Um, but it was I tried to just get a big, uh, a varied scope of things. I just wanted to attack you from different angles. So thank you very much for, for um yeah coming on the podcast. I hope people really find that interesting. Um, it's come a long way. It's come a long way. Absolutely. Yeah. Is <laughs> is a summary of this conversation. No, yeah. I think as I say, if we if we if we look at a timeline, the first kind. So the first. I, I remember back in about 1981, my father becoming what they used to call, and they'll, if some older paramedics are listening to this, we call the INI, what was called the INI, so intubation infusion paramedics, back in about right. eight, 1982. Okay. And I remember my father coming home with his box of, you know, Venflons and ET yeah. tubes and yeah, all yeah. that sort of stuff, and just doing, putting a Venflon in and putting an ET tube in. That's all they pretty much were able to do. Yeah. To, yeah. Now in uh, 2020, paramedics being able to have be able to non-medically prescribe yeah. and be able to undertake advanced interventions and provide care for patients in quite complex cases. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Um, I suspect there'll be change in the next 20 years. Absolutely. Um, yeah, Absolutely. yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Uh, thanks again very much for coming on the podcast. No problem, Josh. Thank you. Thank you again for listening. And if you enjoy the podcast and want to hear more from us, please consider subscribing through your podcast provider. You can also follow Geeky Medics on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. We'd love to hear from you with suggestions on who you would like to hear from next. I hope you've had a lovely Christmas and I hope 2021 is an improvement on our last year. Fingers crossed. As ever, thank you to the producers of the podcast, Alice Appleton and Lewis Potter.